Kia ora, Blueprint, Brooklyn, um, Lyle Bay and the Free Store. Um, I was really lucky a few weeks ago to get to share this message with Lyle Bay in the morning and then with, um, with Blueprint in the evening and then a week later with our Brooklyn crew. Um, and unfortunately we had one of those little technical hiccups where the recording function on Zoom didn't work so Rose has asked me to sit down um, and preach the sermon again to myself and to all of you listening. Um, so the sermon was from Isaiah 43 verses 16 to 21 and it goes something like this. It says, this is what the Lord says, he who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Can't you see it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild, the wild animals honour me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. I give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. So there's three verses there in Isaiah 43, and I'm just going to go through them one by one. The first part of that starts with, this is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Now, the book of Isaiah is written, they reckon, by three authors to a group of people who are in exile in Babylon, and essentially, what exile was was that the um, the Israelites had had their own nation, that had the promised land, but in the same way that they had been slaves, they made slaves out of other people, and they lost what made them unique and holy and righteous. And so, God leads them out into exile, and in exile, they found that um, they were no longer able to practice many of the religious customs which gave them their sense of identity. Um, You'll recall that the story of the Exodus where they are led out of Egypt is a story of moving from slavery in Egypt to the promised land. But more than that, it's a story of moving from the identity of slavery to the identity of being God's children. And so the journey that should have taken them 11 days from, from Egypt to the promised land instead takes them 40 years because God says, you will learn to be my people and you will know that I am your God. And so they learn all these customs along the way of that journey of how to worship God, of how to follow him, and the things that identify them, solidify their identity as a nation, as a people. And then a a few hundred years later, they have ended up back in captivity, in exile, in Babylon, and they cannot practice many of those things that gave them their identity. And so often they would return to this ancient story of how God liberated them once before. And they say, God, will you liberate us again? And so in this passage, Isaiah is writing to the Jews who are trapped in a kind of slavery again as exiles in Babylon. And Isaiah says, God is going to make a way again. In the scripture it says, this is what the Lord says, he who made a way through the sea. And so Isaiah says, God is going to make a way again, just like he made a way through the waters in Egypt for you to escape, he is going to make a way again. For you in unspeakable pain, where the odds are against you, there is somehow, somewhere still 
away. And so this thing of God as the one who makes a way is a right there at the beginning of the story of the Israelites and our story as followers of Christ. And interestingly, when Christ comes, he comes with a similar language. And he, he shows himself as the new exodus, as a new way out of slavery, a new way through the waters. He is making a way through the waters again. So he says in John fourteen six, he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. He's saying the same powerful way that led the Israelites out of Egypt, the same powerful way that will liberate the exiles, Jesus says, I am that powerful way. I'm that same thing. And it's interesting because when uh, when Jesus left and his Holy Spirit came, the early Christians did not call themselves Christians, but they called themselves the people of the way. The people of the way. And so Acts 9, it says, Saul was hunting down anyone who was of the way. And in Acts 24, Paul is under trial and he says, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way. So the way out of Egypt becomes the way out of exile, becomes the way out of sin and brokenness through Jesus. And then Jesus says, you become the people of that way. Where there is no hope, where there is no way forward, where there seems no way out, you are the people of the way. And so what does this passage say about who we are called to be as the people of God? Well, it says this, that in slavery and captivity and torture and crucifixion, in the worst of what humanity has to suffer and endure, we still believe that God is always making a way of hope. We know that the character of our God is that he is the way maker. And so we are witnesses of hope in the world that there is always a way through, that even when it seems like it's over, Jesus is always cutting a path for us. Now, some of you will know the story of us um, up here in Brooklyn, where I'm sitting at the moment. Uh, It was a couple of years ago where we started to feel a sense of call to Brooklyn. And uh, we began to look at a particular house up here on the hill next to a Korean church. And, um, and we didn't really tell too many people about it. And so it came to one of Blueprint's 48-hour prayer weekends last year. And we were sitting there about 1am with our chapter. And on the list of things to pray for, we had put, where should Blueprint plant its next church? Where should it be? And hoping for some, um, some confirmation. And, uh, and so we are in this 48-hour prayer meeting, and we are um, waiting for confirmation. And then Era says, you know, I just can't stop thinking about Brooklyn. And I just can't stop seeing the picture of that Korean church. And he had no idea that, uh, that we had been looking at this house up in Brooklyn next to the Korean church. And so we began to go and lay hands on this house and say, God, deliver this house to us. You know, we got really penty on it. And, uh, and I can remember laying hands on the house, you know, in the middle of the night, going for a prayer walk and just praying and, and saying to our community leads one day, um, you know, I've been praying for the house. And Alana said, yeah, me too. I said, yeah, I went up there in the middle of the night so no one would see me. And she said, no, I went in the middle of the day. <laughs> so I just like love to imagine what it would have been like for the people who live in that house, having these, these people come through all hours, laying their hands and speaking in tongues and being weird. Um, but so we were going for this house and we thought, yes, this is the one. This is the way. We definitely have it. And then the house fell through. And we had no idea what was going on. So on a, um, uh, the Saturday of that week, I was feeling really despondent. 
and uh, I went for a walk up Brooklyn Way for a prey. And as I'm walking around, I see this sign, this real estate sign pointing up the road, and it's out front of this the shop and these apartments. And I follow the sign up the hill, and I can't find anything. And then I come back down to the corner to that shop again, and I see it has a sign in the window that says, the shops are for rent. So I call up the guy on the on the thing, and he, he answers on a Saturday. And, uh, and I said to him, hey, would they look at selling the whole building? He says, no, people have tried. They won't buy it. They just won't buy it. Uh, they won't, sorry, they won't sell it. And, uh, and he said, well, you know what, though, what, tell me, what, what do you think you'd do with it if you did buy it? And I said, well, I started these little, like, shipping container espresso bars to help young people get into their first jobs in the central city. And he goes, oh, stories? I said, yeah, stories the one. He's like, oh, I go there every morning. I love that place. So he says, all right, I'll give them a call. I'll try it because I love what you do. I'm like, okay, cool. So he calls them up. And there are two owners of the place, and there's conditions. One of them is a, a beautiful, um, vivacious Italian woman in her 60s who says, Mamma Mia, every 30 seconds, no joke. And her desire was that her family had owned this building, and they didn't want it to be developed um, or knocked down. They just wanted someone who would care for it and do something good with it. And then the other guy who owned the other half of it was born in an Anglican family and had lived his whole life in the Anglican church and just wanted it to go to some Anglicans, which was convenient. So we sit down with them and we make an offer. Uh, Sorry, we don't make an offer. We ask them what they want for it and they slide a figure across the table and we look at it and it's about $600,000 more than we had to spend. And so we slid another offer over the table, which was about 600000 less. And a few days later, they accepted the offer, and that is where we are now, where we are worshipping um, and where we are setting up community spaces and, and social businesses. And, you know, the crazy thing is that this building, which I'm in now, is on the other side of the Korean church. And so in that, in that, in that story, in our experience of coming here to Brooklyn, there was a moment where we thought God had spoken. And yet the way seemed to come to a dead end. And yet God made a way. God made a way even when it seemed there was no way. And that is just the character of our God, that he is the way maker. And so we are called to be a fearless people who know that God was faithful to make a way for Moses. He was faithful to make a way for Isaiah. He was faithful to make a way by sending his son to die. He was faithful to make a way in the early church for the people of the way. And he will be faithful again to make a way for us today. So point one, Jesus is the way maker and we are called to be people of the way. And then the second scripture goes like this, second verse. It says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Now it's a bit strange here, right? Because the first verse of this has been hyping Jesus up as the one who continues in the old story. It says, He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses. So it goes back to this most foundational story of the people of God. And it's drawing back on their whakapapa, their history. And then the next scripture goes like this. Forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. I'm doing a new thing. It's a little bit uncomfortable, I reckon. But here's what's interesting about it. The passage starts, this verse starts with God liberating his people by making dry land through the water. It says, he who made a way through the sea. 
So they were stranded at the waters and the waters were opened up and they walked across dry land. But then in this verse, the passage flips the metaphor. He says, I am making a way in the wilderness, water in the dry place, streams in the wasteland. So whereas before it was dryness being made in the waters, in this case it is waters coming to the dry place. The metaphor is flipped. So in one passage, liberation was dry ground in the waters, but then God is saying, I am going to make water in the dry ground. And then he says, don't you perceive it? Can't you see it? So what was the prophet Isaiah saying here? What was God saying here? We're saying you're so used to your old liberation narrative that you can't notice that I'm liberating you a different way. It's the same liberator. I am the same way maker. But last time it was dry ground in the raging waters. And this time it's waters rising up from dry ground. So he says, don't dwell on the past. I'm doing a new thing. You're not seeing it because you're expecting it to look like the old thing. You know, it's almost like it's almost like sometimes we look out at the oceans waiting for a boat to come in. But right behind us, there's a chariot come to rescue us. That, that we have become so preoccupied with a particular vision of how God liberates. And we need to be liberated again to see that he may be moving a different way. You know, a little while ago, I was looking after an Anglican parish. And I'd been there for about 10 or 12 weeks. And on the last week there, their vestry, who were quite, quite elderly, said, could you sit down with us and just tell us what you think we should do to get young families and different people in here? And I said, um, well, you're beautiful, welcoming people, but I think you might be too traditional for people to get involved in. I said, I think, I feel like if families come here, they might be worried that their kids are going to be too noisy, like you just need to become a little bit more flexible. And this beautiful 80-year-old man says, says to me, he says, well, you know, we have been on page 404 of the prayer book for a long time. Maybe it's time to move to page 476. And you know, the prayer book is a beautiful thing, but for this man, he was so stuck within this particular idea of where God had been present to them in the past that he couldn't imagine a future that didn't look the same. You know, at the moment I've been working on this this new book and um, and my last book was all about justice and mission and the incarnation and laying down our lives. And I keep trying to write the second part of the book at the moment. And every time I come to it, I'm trying to write these punchy, gutsy, missional DNA stuff. And I just get stuck. And the other day I was going for a walk and a pray and sitting up at the war memorial looking over the city. And I just felt the spirit speak, Scotty, when are you going to accept that I've asked you to write a book about God's love and acceptance? And this won't be the same as the last one. It's hard to hear sometimes. You know, the way of yesterday may not be the way of today. The way of today may not be the way of tomorrow. Walter Brueggemann has this beautiful poem called Not the God We Would Have Chosen. And part of it goes like this. It says, We would like to take the hammer of doctrine and take the nails of piety and nail your feet to the floor and have you stay in one place. And then we find you moving, always surprising us, always coming at us from new directions. Challenge to us today might be where are we waiting for dry ground in the waters, but God wants to bring waters to the dry ground. We see the same thing when Jesus finally came 
that they were waiting for a warrior king who would defeat their enemies, but instead they got a servant king who was defeated. They were waiting for a strong crusader, instead they got a baby in a manger. Many missed who Jesus was because they were looking for God in the good old stories and not hearing him say, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Can't you see it? So point number one, Jesus is the way maker and we are called to be people of the way. And point number two, the way of yesterday may not be the way of today. The way of today may not be the way of tomorrow. And then the final uh, third verse of this, this passage says this, The wild animals honour me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. This passage ends with this picture of praise. The animals are honouring God. He's giving drink to a parched people and they rise to praise him with all creation. You see, when God makes a way, that way leads us to praise. I love this passage from Acts 3, 1 to 10. It's called the story of the lame beggar. I'll, I'll read it to you now. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for money. And Peter directed his gaze at him as did John and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazed at what happened to him. See, God makes a way, and that way should lead us to praise. For the lame beggar, God made a way to healing, and that healing led him to praise. But the thing is that God does not just break through. God does not just make a way for the sake of it. He doesn't heal bodies for the sake of us being able-bodied. He doesn't fill stomachs so that we're not hungry. God makes a way because everything God does is to show who God is. Everything God does is to show who God is. He heals the sick so they would know their father as a healer. She fills the hungry so they would know this mother as a provider. He shows compassion so they would know him as compassionate. She makes a way so that we would know her as the way maker. The point of everything God does is that we would know her character, that we would fall more in love with him. And like in Acts 3, that we would rise like the beggar and give praise to him for who he is. You know, a few years ago, we were sitting around home, around a flat, uh, Anna and I, before we were married, and our friend Elliot. And uh, I got a phone call from a friend, and she said, Scotty, I need to tell you something weird. And I said, oh, yeah. She said, um, there's gold dust all throughout my room. I said, oh, that, that sounds odd. Did you, um, did you break a, I don't know, a jar of glitter? She's like, no, it's like a, a Holy Spirit thing. I said, all right. She said, no, really? I said, well, we're going to get in the car and we're going to come round and you had better be telling the truth. 
or I'm expecting something incredible, um, you know, something on the level of like a bucket of KFC during level four lockdown. And so we drive around and I'm sceptical and but we walk in the front door and we turn into her room and sure enough there is gold everywhere. And it's falling on our faces and it's falling on our skin and, and it's all over the walls and 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 I immediately took, you know, the place of Judas when Mary broke the perfume over Jesus' feet. And Judas says, Couldn't this money have been given to the poor? And I kind of found myself thinking that, you know, I was like, I have been in parts of the world where people struggle to even get one meal a day. You know, 20 people to rooms smaller than my lounge. And yet, here is God pouring out gold on my middle-class Pakia friend who lives in a fancy suburb. I'm like, what are you doing, God? And so I began to pray. We began to pray and say, God, what are you doing here? Why are you doing this? And I heard her God say, because I love her, because I love her, because I love her, because I love her. And I said, yeah, yeah, cool, God, but I, I'm, I'm going to need a little bit more than that. Practically, why are you doing this? And he said, because I love her, because I love her, because I love her, because I love her. You see, everything God does is to show who God is. And when we realize who God is, it leads us to praise. And, you know, our response to that was we worshipped and we worshipped and we worshipped in the gold late into the night and thanked God for who he is. So point one was Jesus is the way maker and we are meant to be people of the way. Point number two is that the way of yesterday may not be the way of today. And point number three is that God makes a way and that way leads us to praise. And so to finish with, I'd like to read you that full prayer of Walter Brueggemann's. It's called, Not the God We Would Have Chosen. We would as soon as you were stable and reliable. We would as soon as you were predictable and always the same toward us. We would like to take the hammer of doctrine and the nails of piety and nail your feet to the floor and have you stay in one place. And then we find you moving. Always surprising us. Always coming at us from new directions. Always planting us and uprooting us and tearing all things down and making all things new. You are not the God we would have chosen had we done the choosing. But we are your people and you have chosen us in freedom. We pray for the great gift of freedom that we may be free toward you as you are in your world. Give us that gift of freedom that we may move in new places in obedience and in gratitude. Thank you for Jesus who embodied your freedom for all of us. Amen.